Good morning. I'm Pastor Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege this morning to give the message from God's Word. But before we do that, I did want to remind you that we have started uh, the month of Ramadan, at least our Muslim neighbors have, and we uh, are doing what we've done every year for the past several years, and that is uh, pray for the Muslim world during their month of Ramadan. They're fasting and seeking Allah, and we want to pray for them during this time that, that God would break through in so many different ways to Muslim people groups. And so we have a guide. If you want to come in the church, you can come grab them. We have them here. If you would like a PDF copy, they have given us permission to email a limited amount of those out. So you need to email me, andrew at villagebible.com, and I will get you a PDF if you'd like it, or you can swing by the church. Um, just to emphasize, this year they're doing uh, the movements within Islam, trying to help us understand the various uh, beliefs and movements within Islam. And so I'm going to pray today for the Tijaniya people of West Africa. Um, And this is just an example of what you can do every day as you read through and are educated and informed about various people groups and movements within Islam. So I'm going to pray. Uh, having read this myself this morning, you can also, by the way, follow on uh, Instagram, look up, just look up 30 Days of Prayer for the Muslim World on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and you can get an abbreviated version. It doesn't give you all of the information, but at least it's a help. So I'm going to pray for the Tijaniya people of West Africa before we get started. Father, we pray this morning for the Tijaniya movement, primarily in West Africa. Lord, I pray for the Christian workers who are involved in trying to reach specifically these people with the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for those workers that you would give them, especially in the month of Ramadan, opportunities to reach out to Muslims and teach them, tell them, proclaim to them good news that they can know that their sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Help them to be able to teach the true words of Jesus Um, the prophet that Muslims believe in, but not to be the son of God. Lord, I ask that you would have breakthroughs happen among these people in West Africa. Lord, that they would be reached with good news and that they in turn would reach their families and neighbors and friends. And Lord, thank you for the privilege that it is to learn about and pray for these people groups. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we're going to finish the chapter. Pastor Ron got us through for the first five verses last week. And basically, since we started chapter two, we have been in a portion of the letter where Paul is recounting his ministry to the Thessalonian church, which you can find in Acts chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18, if you would like. I'm not going to recount all of that, but Pastor Ron kind of left us on a little bit of a cliffhanger last week as Paul is uh, telling the Thessalonians what has happened since they left. And if you'll remember, they had to leave early, earlier than they wanted to because of persecution and being forced to escape that place. So I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13, and then we'll dive right in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. 
For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Verse 6 starts by addressing the concern, the worry, the anxiety that was in the heart of Paul as he waited for Timothy to come back with news of the Thessalonian church. So last week, Pastor Ron left it in in verse 5, and there was real fear on Paul's part that perhaps the Thessalonian church had fallen away. That perhaps because of persecution and because they hadn't been able to continue their teaching ministry there, that maybe they had all fallen away and their work had all been in vain. So everything hinged on waiting for Timothy's return. At this point, Paul is in Corinth waiting. And so this is weeks, possibly months of waiting for Timothy to return. So imagine Paul with no way of communication to hear, just waiting for Timothy to come back. What would the news be? Would it be good? Would it be bad? And we find out in verse 6, thankfully, that there is good, good news from the Thessalonian church, and Paul rejoices. And basically the tone of this whole passage, verses 6 through 13, is one of rejoicing and thanksgiving because of the news that has been heard. And you can even just, as you read it, you can kind of sense Paul's love for the Thessalonian church, how he longs to see them. And I even entitled the the message today, Face to Face, which seems to be uh, rather appropriate for us at this moment in time that we long to be together face to face and that we want to be together soon. And Lord, may it be. But as Paul received the news from Timothy, he hurriedly wrote this letter back to send back to the Thessalonians. And so the first thing that I want us to see in verses six through eight is that the faith of others should encourage us in trials. The faith of others should encourage us in trials. We see an example from Paul as he waits for the news. He's encouraged by the news of others' faith. His concern and love for his brothers and sisters is such that when he hears the good news that they are still faithful, he is joyful. He is encouraged. He is comforted by this fact. And so that's a good thing for us to to ponder, to think about. When we hear the news of others who are faithful, maybe those who have been at our church previously and have moved away, or maybe there are people in your family who have gone away to college or moved to a different location. I know of several families in our church right now that have had to deal with that. Hearing of their faith should encourage us anyway, but especially when we are in our trials. You know, in our trials, Satan wants us to be inward focused. He wants us to only be concerned about us. Uh, He tempts us to have pity parties and he tempts us to think only of ourselves and to shut out all others. But if we do that, we're actually shutting off an avenue that the Lord has given to us for our own encouragement to hear of the faith of others. That's why we try to tell you what's going on with our missionaries around the world in various different ways to to give you updates on what's going on so that you we might be encouraged to hear what they are doing. We want to hear reports from our missions teams that have gone out. 
In fact, we're going to hear reports at the annual business meeting in three weeks that are meant to be rejoicing and celebrating at what the Lord has done to encourage our hearts. Uh, Some of the things that we see in these verses are very interesting. Some of the wording that is repeated over and over again. And in typical fashion, Paul writes verses 6 through 10, actually, all as one long sentence. Uh, Pastor Ron has said this recently that Paul would fail in some English classes, but that's okay because he didn't speak English and it works fine in Greek. But this is one long sentence that thankfully our translators have given us punctuation to help us read it without taking too many breaths. Uh, But we see that Paul's worries have been answered. See that Timothy has returned to Paul and he has brought the good news. This interesting phrase, brought the good news, is the same phrase that Paul uses elsewhere. In fact, every other time that Paul uses it, it is referring to proclaiming or preaching the gospel, the good news. Uh, Here's the only time that Paul uses it that it's it's just news, um, not the specific gospel proclamation of Jesus and what he has done for us. The good news here, the gospel that he receives, is the gospel of faithfulness of the Thessalonian church. The news consists, later in verse 6, of the faith and love that they have. He hears about their faith and their love and that the Thessalonian church always remembers Paul and Silas and Timothy and they long to see them. This is good news and it comforts Paul as he is concerned for his brothers and sisters. They long to see him and he longs to see them. His time with them was cut short and he wants to be back. Our our time has been cut short together these last this last month and a half, and we long to be back together as well. In verse 7, Paul tells them that things aren't going so well for him, as he's already said, but in the midst of those trials, he uses the word distress and affliction. They have been comforted because of the faith of the Thessalonians. And I wonder if, if we flip it on its head, if we think, man, one of the ways that we could be encouragements, comforts to other people is in our faith. If we remain faithful, then we can be an encouragement to other Christians. In fact, I just mentioned our missionaries. The reverse is also true. When our missionaries hear of the faithfulness happening here at Village Bible Church, they are encouraged. Parents, grandparents, aren't you encouraged when your children, you receive reports of your children's faithfulness? So we ought to be striving to be faithful to the Lord primarily because we want to to love him. But also part of loving others is realizing that our faith can be encouraging for others as well. We see this happen every time we have baptisms or child dedications um, or or, uh, reports of of, um, mission trips here at Village. We are encouraged to hear of the faithfulness of those who have gone out and of the, the ministries that we have been able to help in. In fact, I think that that Paul, maybe not even consciously, maybe just because he was so immersed and saturated in the Old Testament, is thinking about Proverbs 25, 25, which says this, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Uh, This is basically acting out that proverb, that, that, that cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. The, the good news was received by Paul and Silas from Timothy, and it is like finally they have been able to get a cup of cold water in a thirsty place. Maybe some of you are thirsty right now, and so we want to be those who are encouraging and comforting each other by our faith. 
I don't mean just like a, hey, you can do it. It's okay. You're going to make it. We're all see, we'll all see each other someday. I mean in a, I'm going to live in such a way that I will be an encouragement to those around me, my, my family, my church family, as they see me staying faithful to the Lord, that can be an encouragement to them. In verse 8, Paul says something rather extraordinary. He says, now we live. He could almost say, now we are alive. It's a present tense verb. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul connects his, his life, his will to live, his desire to live, his enjoyment of life based on the perseverance, the endurance of the Thessalonian church. Some other translations try to give the, 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 the force of the wording by saying something like, um, now you, we really live. Uh, the NIV and the NASB say that. Um, the, the New Living says it gives us new life. It, it's like Paul is revived by hearing of the faith of the Thessalonians. And so I would just ask us to think about this. If we would be like Paul, then we must be caring, concerned for those believers in our lives who we love, who are close and who are far away. That, that our, our life depends on loving others. So if we're all about ourselves, if we're all about fulfilling our own desires, uh, we won't think about other people very much. And so perhaps um, we are tempted in this time where we don't see each other to think of those people that we don't mind not seeing. That is certainly something that Satan would tempt us with. But what we want to, to emphasize here is how Paul does not discriminate with just the people that he likes in the Thessalonian church. He longs for the entire church. He longs for his brothers and sisters. Hearing of their endurance, of them standing fast, gives him life. So does your heart leap to hear of others following Christ? Does your heart receive encouragement by seeing others baptized? Are we energized by the faith and love of others? Are we even paying attention to notice this? I think that sometimes the ways that we interact online, the time that we spend online can dull us to the news that's happening because we're so flooded with everything that is going on that we can't focus on those people that we actually know, that we actually have interactions with, and that we actually care for and have connections to. We need to be careful that our use of social media and the internet drives us to care for others and not just observe them. That we don't just scroll through and say, huh, hmm, oh, hey, look at that. Wow, that's pretty, that's nice. Instead of seeing what our, our brothers and sisters in Christ are doing and joining in them, joining in with them. And especially... When we are experiencing difficulty, stress, trials, persecution, it is in those times that we are tempted to merely survive and just focus on me. It's me time. I don't see Paul ever having me time in the scripture. Paul is caring for his own soul by caring for others and loving God. So I think we see here that God made us to thrive together. God didn't make us to pull away from community and thrive apart from each other. I think that we need to, when we come back, feel this even more, that we need to fight for each other. We need to fight to love each other and to be in community together because that is where our life comes from. 
And this also gives us insight into the reality of the church as family. You see that Paul is calling, in verse 7, these people, his brothers and sisters. It's sibling language. It's family language. Yes, the ESV says brothers, but that, that word means brothers and sisters. None of the women would have felt left out by that phrase. They would have felt included that brothers and sisters, we long for you. And so the church really is family. How do we know that Paul really considered the believers his brothers and sisters? He empathized with them. He felt alongside of them. And not only that, but then he acted on it. How did he do it? He sent his most faithful lieutenant, Timothy, away from him. Timothy could have helped Paul in all of his ministry. And and Paul willingly sent Timothy away. It was important enough to find out what was going on in Thessalonica that Paul sent away his best to go find out. He wanted to know their spiritual state. So he sent his best. I, I couldn't help but want to read a story that I, as I was preparing for this message, I was reading the book When the Church Was a Family by Dr. Joe Hellerman, who's a professor at Talbot. And um, he writes about a time when he was up in uh, Mammoth Lakes, a favorite place of many people in our church. It was in 1989, and I'm just going to read from um, his book and, and show you a, a practical current example of what this family would look like. In 1989, I almost died while we were on vacation in the Sierras. It was the July 4th weekend, and I was doubled over with pain in my abdomen, lying on the floor of our condo and unable even to put on my clothes. I ended up in a little 10-bed high-tech hospital in town where the staff kept me high on morphine and poked around at me for a couple days. Finally, they sent for a country surgeon from the valley below to try to figure out what was wrong with me. When the doctor cut me open, he discovered that my appendix had burst two days earlier. I was full of peritonitis and just about ready to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. After the doctors took out what was left of my appendix and cleaned out my abdomen, they kept me in the hospital for another week on high-powered intravenous antibiotics trying to kill off a stubborn infection. As the days passed, this regimen appeared to have little positive effect. So the doctors began to talk about taking me back into surgery to treat the problem more directly and aggressively. I was physically and emotionally devastated. Now, think about that and think about Paul and his concern for the Thessalonian church in the midst of trials. Physically and emotionally devastated. Dr. Hellman says, I can honestly say that I was more discouraged and despondent at that point in my hospital stay than I have ever been during my 33 years as a believer in Jesus. That very day, I received a call from a brother on staff at our church, our youth pastor. Now, I am normally a pretty upbeat person, and the youth pastor immediately picked up on the sadness and sense of hopelessness in my voice. Mammoth is about 300 miles from the church in Manhattan Beach, and a good portion of the journey runs along crowded Southern California freeways. But that did not stop the youth pastor from jumping into his car with his wife and two toddlers and driving 12 hours that day round trip just to spend a half hour with me in the hospital room in Mammoth Lakes so that he could pray for me and encourage me as a brother in the Lord. This connection with me as a brother in Christ was such that he apparently could not do otherwise. And I have been forever, forever grateful for it. During a moment of utter darkness when God seemed so far away, this youth pastor became my lifeline to Jesus. What a great example of what it means for us to love one another as brothers and sisters. And I've been encouraged to see the various creative ways that we as a church have been able to do this. And I know there are many that will never be known, 
for good reason. Some of you want to be anonymous and we don't want to trumpet what we're doing. But the fact that we are serving one another fills me with joy and is a great encouragement in this time where we can't be together. The last thing that I want to emphasize here in verse 8 is this this idea of standing fast. Paul was hoping to hear from Timothy that the Thessalonian church was standing fast. And it's kind of a weird phrase if you just think about it. We use it often, but don't. Standing fast. Um, You don't usually use fast in that way. But to stand fast means to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. Paul was hoping to hear that no matter what was happening in Thessalonica, that the believers at the church there was firmly committed in conviction or belief. And he had reason to be concerned because he hadn't been there long enough to teach and to put down roots and to really help this church grow. They had had to be torn away, orphaned from them in their time of need. This immediately reminded me of Paul telling Timothy of his suffering in some of his last written words in the book of 2 Timothy. Paul said, this is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. From a a prison in Rome, Paul is confident that Jesus has given him life, and so he can carry on. He can stand fast in the midst of trial. Paul says that we live if you are standing fast in the Lord, and that is our heart for you that we would live hearing of the steadfastness of your faith, especially in this time. What about during a pandemic or or the boredom or the family stress or the financial stress or the job loss? It means that even then, even then, we pray the words of the prophet Habakkuk, who was watching pagan idol worshipers gather to overrun the holy city of God, and to take his people away. In Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19, the prophet says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. That wording is one of famine, economic devastation. Even in the midst of that, Habakkuk rejoices in the Lord. And so does Paul, and so do the Thessalonians. As Paul moves on into verses 9 and 10, he speaks of the praying that has been going on on Paul and Silas's end for the Thessalonians. And we see in point number two that good news of God's faithfulness produces thanksgiving and fuels prayer. It produces thanksgiving and fuels prayer. In verse 9, Paul asks a a rhetorical question. He doesn't want it to be answered. It's understood what he's saying. But he says, how can we return to God for you? What thanksgiving can we return to God for you? The point being, we can't. We can't actually like repay God enough thanksgiving for all that he has done. The idea is that you can't do it enough and so that we will forever... Be thankful to God for what he has done. For the joy, all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. All that Paul wanted to do was to get back to these people. In the midst of ministry in Corinth, after he had already been doing ministry 
in Berea and in Athens. There are so many people dependent on Paul here, and yet he wants to be with the Thessalonian believers and he wants to continue to teach them. It also is interesting to note that Paul is immediately thankful to God. The news comes from the church about the people and his first reaction is thankfulness to God. So he gets a horizontal message and a vertical thanksgiving. Right? He is thankful to God. He sees God's hand behind the human events. Not in like some weird mystical way, but in a very practical way. He understands that God has kept these people and they have, in the strength the Lord has provided, stood fast. And so he is thankful to God for that. And the joy that comes with that. So sometimes we think we think of Paul as like this uh, great philosopher. Um, he writes Romans, you know, in a so somewhere where he's got a bunch of books and access to a lot of things, and he's just a scholar holed away in uh, an office or something. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Paul is a, a a man of great feeling. The joy that we feel for your sake before God, after all of the worry and anxiety and concern that he had for their souls and for their faith and so now when he's heard this good news all he wants to do is go back and keep teaching them Um, not because he has some like weird complex about like finishing his class (laughs) but that because he wants to give them the tools they need to grow in jesus and so i I think that we see the, the faithful loving personal enduring encouragement that comes when we are faithful Paul received this joy because the Thessalonian believers were faithful. So we, as a church, as Village Bible Church here on Borrow Street, where we've been for, I think, like 65, well, the church has existed for 65 years, if I'm doing my math right. May we be around for 65 more years, being faithful and enduring, standing fast and trusting the Lord. Notice the intensity and the frequency of the prayers in verse 10. Paul tells them, as we pray most earnestly night and day, they've been praying in this, in this period as they've waited weeks, months perhaps. They've been praying and not just kind of run-of-the-mill prayers before they eat their food. You know, like, Thank you, Lord, for this food and amen. Um, they, he is talking about the intensity of the prayers. Most earnestly. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians 3.20 where we have far more abundantly more than we can ask or think, ask or imagine, that, that verse, this superabundance. Basically, it's, it's far more abundantly. And the idea is that they're praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. The intensity of the prayers is ratcheting up. And when are they praying? He says night and day. And that probably doesn't mean like before they go to bed and when they wake up. Um, it means like all the time, like whenever they think about it. It's very close to what he says later in the letter, without ceasing. Uh, that they, they frequently think about the Thessalonian believers and they frequently pray. And when they pray, it is earnest prayer. I wonder if your prayers have been earnest recently or are they been just kind of routine? Because it's really easy to do that, isn't it? It's really easy, especially for those of us who have grown up in the church. Um, we, we've learned how to pray since we were little kids. We kind of have our little rut, our little motto that we say, and then we kind of get on with things. But the, the earnestness of this prayer is, is very instructive for us. That we ought to be thinking of people and then praying for them with intensity. Sometimes we don't do that because it reveals too much of our emotions. We don't want to show people that. Uh, but I think that it's okay. The Lord knows. And so um, even if you do that in your prayer closet or on your knees or alone or laying down in bed as long as you're not falling asleep, 
um, to be earnestly praying is an important thing for us. We need to pray intensely that the Lord would let us come back and be face-to-face here on Sunday mornings. We need to pray intensely for our leaders. We need to pray for our missionaries scattered all around the globe in various places where uh, COVID-19 has not popped up very much or it already has. Um, I think I saw that one of our missionaries um, got out of the house for the first time in 43 days. The, um, that We need to be praying intensely for each other and for our loved ones. The prayer is fueled by the good news. So we are reminded of what God is doing and that re-energizes us to pray more. And then it's interesting that Paul says this and then he does it. So he's not just saying, he, he's not just telling them, he shows them how to do it because verses 11 through 13, he actually prays. He actually prays in verses 11 through 13. And he, uh, the point that I wanted to make here is pray for the temporal, the temporal, but always with the eternal in mind. So, so Paul, Paul doesn't elevate prayer to some kind of like weird language. Have you ever been around people that they don't pray like they talk? Um, they, they talk and then they pray and it's all of a sudden it's like, that's really weird and formal and doesn't sound like you're talking to a person. Um, it sounds like you're reciting something. Um, what Paul does is he actually writes down his prayer for them and it doesn't feel stuffy at all. It, it feels like, oh yeah, this is how Paul writes and he talks and how he prays. Um, and I think that that's important for us to note that he is praying for both temporal things like, Lord, get us back there. Whatever, however you want to do that, get us back to Thessalonica. And then also he prays for the coming of the Lord Jesus and their holiness at that time. So, so those two are, are put placed together and they're not weird to Paul. Um, it is very, um, it's very normal for Paul to pray for things that sometimes we might separate in our minds. Oh, that's just a little thing. Um, but this is a big thing to pray for. Uh, Paul puts them together. And I, I thought as I read this, you know, it's, it's kind of weird that Paul often records prayers in his letters. I mean, he just writes out his prayers. Right? But I think that's instructive. Um, I, I think that sometimes when, when I pray in front of my kids or when I pray in front of the youth or when I pray in front of the whole church that, there, there's a, a sense, part of me is like, I am, I am helping to form and shape how people pray. Like the way that I pray is an example, hopefully, to be imitated by others. But Paul writes them down. And I, I just wonder, last week, Pastor Ron challenged us to write a note to someone in the church. And I'm going to kind of piggyback on that one this week and say, what if we tried this? What if we tried writing out a prayer to God, right? You're not praying to person, <laughs> to someone else, but you pray, write down a prayer to God and then for that person that you're going to send it to. So if I'm going to send a letter to Joshua, I will write down my prayer to the Lord for Joshua. What if we tried that this week? What if that was what we were able to do in, in snail mail form, especially to write out a handwritten prayer to somebody? Plus, that might be just a good exercise for you to get down on paper what is going on in your head sometimes some of us aren't as good at praying out loud in front of other people but if we write it down we're able to measure our words and to say things that are really impactful so let's let's try that this week let's send somebody a prayer to god for them maybe that would be the way that we could encourage one another this week and perhaps it would be a way of answering paul's prayer where in verse 12 he says may the lord make you increase and abound in love for one another that one of the ways we could do that would be to write down 
the prayers for each other. Well, I want you to notice how Paul prays here in verse 11. Who is he talking to? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus. Now, you can't see this in English, but this is super interesting in Greek. Just bear with me for a minute. The, the verb is singular, but Paul is praying to two persons. God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus. And in, in Greek, the verb is supposed to line up. So it's supposed to be a plural verb for plural subjects and a singular verb for singular subjects, right? But he has a singular verb for, a, for plural subjects. This is super interesting, and I think it helps us see what Paul thought about Jesus. Jesus is God. Paul sees God the Father and Jesus as an essential unity. It, it, he is praying to them and using a verb that would be to him. And so he, he is praying equally to God the Father and to Jesus. Have you ever wondered who you should pray to? Have you ever been like listening to somebody else praying? You're like, wait a second, are you allowed to do that? Um, I, I think I learned how to pray and I, learned, I said, dear Jesus. Anybody else do that? Um, or how many of you learned how to pray, Father, dear Father? Okay, yeah. Um, sometimes um, some of us pray and, and pray directly to the Holy Spirit. And people are like, wait, can you do that? Is that in the Bible? Um, and although the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this passage, I think that we can see that, yes, Paul addresses his prayer both to God the Father and to Jesus. So we need to be careful that we're not, well, Jesus taught us to pray to, to our Father. Well, that's true, and Paul is doing that. And now that Jesus is at his right hand um, interceding for us, uh, we can pray to Jesus as well. And so this is a very interesting thing for us to see that that Paul has God the Father and the Lord Jesus on an equal setting. You don't pray to people who aren't able to answer your prayer like a deity can, like a God can. And so Jesus is elevated here to the same place as God the Father. Unity, diversity. We see two of the three members of the Trinity here. And what is he praying for? Well, what he is praying for is first that they could get back to Thessalonica. It's just a very practical prayer. God, get us back. Jesus, open up the way for us to get there. And if you go back and read um, in Acts chapter 16, this is actually something that, 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 that Paul and his band of merry men did. They prayed and asked God where to take them. And sometimes God shut down places where, where they couldn't go. In fact, we find out last week that Satan plays a role in this, and Satan was obstructing them. But Paul doesn't mention Satan in the prayer, which means that Paul sees behind Satan's obstruction God having Satan on a leash. Um, He understands that for whatever reason, God has allowed Satan to, to put this obstruction up for now, but God is the one to appeal to, to open the road back up. And so he asks for the Lord Jesus and God the Father to direct their way back to the Thessalonians. You know, what's interesting about that prayer is that God doesn't answer it. Or at least his answer is no. Or at the very least, it's wait for a long, long time. Because as best as we can tell from Acts and the other letters that Paul wrote, it is very likely Paul did not actually see these brothers and sisters for six or seven more years. Six or seven years after this prayer is finally when he was able to see them face to face. Um, so this is 
helpful for us to understand because we are instructed by God's answers to prayer are sometimes, maybe even often, no. Right? Jesus prayed to the Father and the Father's answer was no. Or wait sometimes. Waiting for a long time in this case. So prayer is not our attempt to coerce God or negotiate with God to get him to do what we want. Um, that, that's how you pray to, um, to a Greek God who is kind of a lot more like us and who comes down and does crazy things in, with humankind. Um, that's not how you pray to a sovereign God. Our prayer is heartfelt pleas to a good father. Throughout scripture, we see that, that prayer is, is likened to pr- asking your daddy for something. Now, your daddy, little children, knows what's best for you, right? Go back to the 50s, father knows best. <laughs> um, if, if you're a good dad and a wise dad, then you will frequently say no to your unwise, immature little children, <laughs> When your two-year-old son asks you for cookies first thing in the morning, you will probably, most likely, most of the time, say, no, buddy. Not because you're mean, but because you're good. If we start off this day with Chips Ahoy, the day is not going to go well, and neither will the patterns that we set. In the same way, God knows when to tell us no for our good. Because we frequently think we know better than God. (laughs) Which is why we come to God in prayer with the, not my will, but your will be done. Which means we can ask boldly because we know if God says no, he still loves us. And if he says no, it's for our good. So we can ask. And then we can say, okay, I don't like that answer. But I love my, my father and he knows me and he knows what's best for me and I will fight to trust him in the no, in the wait, in the weeks, months, years long wait. They hear this, this good news. They pray to the Lord. Everything is so upbeat in this passage. And yet if we look at the historical situation behind it, they wait six or seven years. God answers the prayer finally. Six or seven years later. Millard Erickson is a theologian. He says this, Prayer is not so much getting God to do our will as it is demonstrating that we are as concerned as is God that his will be done. We are aligning our wills with God, which means we can ask for things. We can ask. We can ask for stuff. We can ask for job promotions. We can ask for jobs. We can ask for healing. We can ask for spouses. We can ask for children. We can ask for all these things because our Father loves us and He loves to interact with us. And sometimes He tells us no. And sometimes He tells us yes. Notice what else Paul asked for after asking for God to clear the road. Verse 12, May the Lord make you increase, Thessalonians, and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. The request is that they would increase and abound in love. And in fact, later on in chapter 4, we're going to see Paul address this in, in greater detail. But he wants them to grow, increase, abound, 
in love for one another, that the lo- their love would grow and bear fruit, that it would overflow, and that it would be for one another, primarily. New Testament love is usually for those in the church, but it just can't help but spill over into the general public. Jesus loved his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, yes, we love one another and we love all. That means those we disagree with, those we don't like, those we didn't vote for, those who don't like us. We grow in love for them as well. Last verse 13. Why? Why does he want them to to grow, increase, and abound in love? Is this some like duty that they have to do? Grow in love. Do it. Come on. Grow in love. Hurry up. No, he, he wants them to, to the, the picture is, is of enjoying this, not of like some like rigorous discipline. Now, sometimes it takes rigorous discipline to love certain people, okay? But the idea here is that if our love is increasing and abounding, it's multiplying. The, the love that I have for you and that you have for me increases and abounds and overflows and goes on to other people and starts to spread. That when that happens, it is not just so that we're all lovey-dovey together. It has a purpose. Verse 13, so that, so that what? So that if you are increasing and abounding in love for one another and for all, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Interesting to note that Paul ends chapter 1 with Jesus' return, chapter 2 with Jesus' return, chapter 3 with Jesus' return, sneak peek, chapter 4, Jesus' return, chapter 5 talks about Jesus' return. There's a theme going on here. And he says that the reason that their love is to increase and abound is so that they can establish their hearts, that they have a firm foundation and that their hearts are blameless in holiness. We want to be holy in God's sight. God said, be holy as I am holy. If love is giving yourself for someone else's good, then when we focus outwardly, we are like Jesus who is altogether holy. We do not become holy by pulling back from people. This is the mistake of the, the, father, the desert fathers. Many of those who went out into the wilderness of the desert to escape from people so that they could be more holy. The idea is you need to be, your, your holiness needs to rub off on other people. Now, that's not to say that, that sometimes, sometimes we have to make choices with who our friends are and who we're spending time with. But the whole point there is holiness as well is if someone someone you're with or a group that you're with hinders your holiness, you need to pull back from them. But we don't pull back from community altogether and, and retreat to the desert and the wilderness, the woods, the beach, because I just, I'm just, I can feel God there. If you can't feel God with your church family, something's wrong. Because if we are all made in the image of God and the Holy Spirit indwells us, then being together should be, doesn't mean it won't be hard, but it should be something that makes us more holy. Don't we want to be more holy? Aren't you sick of sin? Aren't you sick of your sinfulness? Man, I want to be holy. That would also increase the effectiveness of my friendships to other people. If I'm more holy, then I am a better friend. I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. We want to be more holy, and the way we do it is to increase and abound in love for one another. Pastor Ron and Pastor Agent have been talking about when we finally come back together and are able to meet all together in this rather empty room, um, that it's going to be a time of celebration, that we are going to be excited 
we are going to probably do a potluck or something because we just need to eat together and be together, which, you know, side note, I just wonder how much sourdough bread there's going to be at our next potluck. Um, excited to see how that works out. But I, I can't wait for us to be back together. And one of the reasons I can't wait for us to be back together is because one of the words for New Testament believers is saints or, or holy ones. So we are, we are the holy ones of God. And when we're together, we are being built into a temple for the Lord. It, it's, it's also really interesting to see at the very end here that the purpose of this is to be ready when Jesus comes back, to be ready for judgment, to be ready for the end. We want to have our house in order, to be increasing in holiness and love when the end comes. Matthew, Jesus in Matthew says that the love of some will grow cold. This is an exact opposite of what Paul wants. Paul wants our love to increase and abound at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This, this, is, a, this is a very interesting. It seems like Paul is interpreting Zechariah 14.5. Zechariah 14.5 is talking about the end and the return of Yahweh. And Zechariah 14.5 says, Then Yahweh my God will come and all the holy ones with him. The word for saints is holy ones. So you could read the end of First Thessalonians 3.13 and say, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his holy ones. Now, there is a debate whether or not these are saints, people, Christians, or whether they're angels or whether they're both. And I think that you could probably go a multiplicity of ways on this. I tend to kind of lean toward angels, um, but I could definitely be persuaded that it's angels and saints um, when Jesus comes again. Uh, but the idea is that whoever they are, they're coming with the Holy One. The Holy Ones are coming with the Holy One. And we want to be a part of that party. We want to be in that group, the Holy Party, um, made holy by the blood of Jesus. That when Jesus comes again, that we are to be caught being holy, caught doing what we're called to do. And so we want to be, we want to be preparing for the Lord's coming. And so in, in order to do that, we need to do face-to-face ministry. That's, that's what we're, we're, we're seeing here. Paul longs to be with these people and to have face-to-face ministry with them. I just want to end by, by thinking through an application or three um, that can come to mind as we talk about what this looks like and what this means. I mean, we talked about writing a letter and trying to write out a prayer to somebody. We've talked about some other things, but I think that even when we think about this local church and your participation in the body at Village Bible Church, my participation, um, that I'm challenged by this passage for the way that Paul feels about fellow believers, the way that he emphasizes the joy. Paul had problems with people, (laughs) But big problems with people in lots of places. You know, lucky Paul, he got to be involved in bunches of churches, splits and fights, not just one. And yet the, 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 the theme, the tone here is Paul is not like, um, he's not hesitant. Paul is not kind of like, oh, brother, here we go again. Paul is all in. He is all in, in the joy of being with his brothers and sisters. And so maybe if we regain something from this time of being apart, It's an emphasis on the joy of being together, the joy of being a church family. I also think this is a good reminder for us to pay attention to our missionaries and to love them well. Um, This is kind of the idea of Paul sends Timothy to go, right? And so as we send out 
missionaries and we send them, we want to hear back from them. We want to hear reports of how they're doing and we want to encourage them as well. And I, I, the last application I have is for the business meeting in three weeks. Um, some of you, this, this is probably not everyone's favorite event of the year in our, the life of our church, but think about how a report from Timothy brought so much joy. Paul couldn't wait to hear the report. And obviously the report was, was good news. But if what we give reports at the business meeting, and the report should be joyful, that's on us to do. But we want to gather together digitally probably on Zoom, but this year, but we want, we want to gather and we want to reflect on what God has done. Our theme for the year is remember and celebrate. And so we can take from this passage the joy, the, the, the comfort, the prayer, all of these things are related to a report. So when we hear about baptisms this year and we hear about camps and about ministries and about VBS and about all of these things, that is a time to be joyful. It is a time to rejoice in what God has done so that we might have our prayers for the coming year fueled by the reports from last year. We want to have this fuel that, that keeps us going, that keeps us praying, that keeps us ministering, that keeps us serving the Lord. And in all of this, in all of this, we trust the Lord to do what he's going to do and we get to partner with him and join with him. We can't wait to be back together again, all of us face to face in this room. Maybe, maybe hugs. We'll see how long we have to wait until that happens. But we, I can't wait to be face to face together with you and I, I hope that you feel that same longing as well. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity through this technology that even though we are apart and we have some semblance of being together, of singing, of praying, of looking at Bibles together, Lord, I pray that you would do this work in us, that we would have our love abound and increase for one another in this time of of being separated and being away, that we would get creative in how to do this. And Lord, that in the midst of it all, you would make us more holy. We want to be like Jesus. We don't want to be like our natural selves. We don't want to be suspicious and we don't want to be backbiting and gossipy. We don't want to be negative and complaining. Lord, we want to be full of joy because we know that you are in charge. We know that you sent your only son to take our place, to bear your wrath so that we won't have to, so that we might be filled with your Holy Spirit to live lives that matter, that are meaningful, and that are headed for eternity. Lord, I pray that you would do that in us, um, even in this time. And Lord, I pray that you would be with our leaders and our officials, help them to give, give them wisdom on what to do. And Lord, help us to figure out what our role is as well as we pray for our leaders and as we submit to the governing authorities. Uh, Lord, help us to figure out how we can do that in a way that shines the light of Jesus across this country and across this world. In Jesus' name, amen.